Coming up on Tech Nation, the author known best to you as Lemony Snicket. Daniel Handler joins me to talk about his latest adult novel, Bottle Grove. Then I'll speak with two different female engineers. Brianna Ronco is the CEO of Group K Diagnostics. They're looking to create immediate response diagnostics. And Dr. Erica Smith, the Vice President of Business Development for Tools for Patient. She'll explain how to identify the impact of a positive response to a drug being tested, even when the patient received nothing. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, I was able to speak with Dan Rome, the founder of the Napkin Academy and the author of Blah, 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 What to Do When Words Don't Work. He's long been known for drawing pictures of complex events. I was sure that when he reads the news every day, he gets pictures in his brain. Oh, that happens all the time. For me, it happens all the time. In fact, I have a mantra that I say, whenever... I could draw a picture of something. I should draw a picture of something. And one of the issues that I find when people say, Dan, you know, I like this idea of visual thinking, but it's not for me because I'm not visual. It's just an issue of practice. And part of that goes back to what you call the fox and the hummingbird. Yeah, my fox and my hummingbird. Everybody has one. Or one of each. And what we all have both. <laughs> we all have a fox and a hummingbird. And what they really are is a new take on the old notion of right brain and, and, and left brain thinking, which we know over the last 25 years, since the very first people were coming up with this notion of saying, well, as humans, isn't it interesting that our neocortex, the top part of our brain, most of our brain is split in half. Isn't that funny? Why might that be? And forever and ever, we didn't know. And, and way back in, you know, in the dark ages, scientifically, people would say that, well, one lobe of the brain is probably just redundant. We probably don't need it at all. And then, of course, over the last 20 years, it became clear that both halves of the neocortex seem to do things slightly differently. And we all got very excited in sort of the notion of pop psychology because it is such a magnificent visual analogy, which I love, this notion that our neocortex split into two halves. Each half is specialized on doing one thing. And one half is about being analytical and the other half is about being creative. And it turns out it's just nowhere near that simple. So it, one of the things we do know <laughs> welcome is... Welcome to science. Welcome to science. It's nowhere near that simple. And you know what? So many of us would hold on to this really lovely notion of saying I'm right-brained or I'm left-brained. It's so unfortunate that we have to let that notion go. But we do know this, that the two halves of our neocortex have evolved over the millions of years to have slightly different function. One half of our brain has evolved to become really good at looking at the world in terms of little bits kind of looking at the world as if it were pixels. But think what would happen, and this is why we needed the other half of the brain, the part that then focuses on the broader picture, on the periphery. Because if we're so busy focused out on the horizon, you know, if we believe this model, then we're not paying any attention to the thing that's crawling up behind us that's going to jump and eat us. So one half of our brain has evolved to be able to look at the little bits and focus. The other half has evolved to be the glue and pull it all together. So back to the fox and the hummingbird. I wanted to come up with a model that did show that we have two different brains, and it's not so simple as one being verbal and one being visual. And I said, imagine if half our brain was like a fox, very clever, 
very linear, kind of smug, kind of self-satisfied, but able to look at the world and say, I know what to do. And that, to me, really is more our verbal mind, our fox mind. And then I thought, well, how do we account for the fact that sometimes we see the world as a map? We see everything at the same time. Well, that's more like the hummingbird mind. So fast, so flighty, can't focus, can't settle down, but equally valid a view of the world. And the problem, Moira, is that from an educational perspective, we have learned to believe that our fox mind, our more linear mind, is what it means to be intelligent. And so what we do in school is we teach ourselves and our students how to be verbal, how to describe things in a linear A, B, C, D fashion, which half the time is wonderful. But unfortunately, that's all the training that we do. Nobody has ever given us a tool to say, well, what about the part of our mind that's seeing the whole at once, the peripheral view, the hummingbird moving so fast that it sees everything, you know, it sees the trees, it sees the flowers all at the same time, is not able to process it in an A, B, C, D way, but in a whole way. We have no tools for that. So that's where really I set up to try to say, we know how to be a good fox. Let's learn how to be a better hummingbird. This 2013 Tech Nation interview featured Dan Rome and his book, Blah, 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 What to Do When Words Don't Work. His most recent book is Draw to Win, a crash course on how to lead, sell, and innovate with your visual mind. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Lemony Snicket, the popular author of youth literature, or rather, I'll interview his real self, Daniel Handler. We'll talk about his eighth adult novel, Bottle Grove. Then I speak with two different female engineers in the same program, and I'm a female engineer myself. What are the odds of that? First, Brianna Ronco, the founder of Group K Diagnostics, is looking to change rapid diagnostics, while Dr. Erica Smith from Tools for Patient talks about identifying and accounting for the high placebo response in clinical trials, all because we're human and we want these treatments to work. Handler. Well, Daniel, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you very much for having me. Well, your latest novel, as of this interview, is Bottled Grove. Yes. In San Francisco. We're really talking about Stern Grove, aren't we? Well, originally, I was uh, plotting this novel, and I wanted some of it to take place in a park, one of the scraggly parks that San Francisco has. And I wanted to part of it to take place in a bar and I thought it would be fun for the park and the bar to be named the same thing as they are 
And um, I started playing with Sterngrove because I find that a very spooky park. I was raised near Sterngrove and it was a, a park of my childhood and I found it very spooky. And I returned there while researching the novel and found it to be even spookier, despite it kind of being cleaned up, scarier But somehow. the teenagers will all tell you. That's the place. I guess when I was a teenager, I was terrified of it, but that's just me. Um, they go, and so they go I was clumps. calling it Sterngrove for a while, the book. And then uh, I have a very forthright editor, uh, Nancy Miller, over there at Bloomsbury. And I had a first draft of it with a long uh, description of where Sterngrove sat in the city. And she said, I don't care where Sterngrove <laughs> sits in the city. And I thought, oh, that's so true. I don't care either. And then I realized I could invent a new park and I could kind of play with the geography of San Francisco, which was for me part of the delight of constructing this book was making up where things went. Well, recently I interviewed New York Times uh, journalist Matt Richtel mm. about his latest novel, which is sort of a an updated Dashiell Hammett, yeah. uh, Sam Spade, tech noir thing. But you've captured another view of living in today's San Francisco. You I mean, you cannot escape the fact that all of these tech people came here mostly from other places and they got a lot of money and they're kind of all over the city now uh yes i think we're in the throes of deep change and if you're a lifelong san franciscan uh as i am you um some parts seem exactly the same and some parts see seem so changed as to make you wonder if uh if the how you can identify the center of the city to see what is really essential about a city. So that was, I think, one of the themes of the book. Well, it's seven miles by seven miles. Yeah. So if you're going to stay in San Francisco, that's that's where you're at. That's <laughs> It's right, not guess, a big place. Uh, I quite agree. But, I mean, as um, you never know what will change a city in such a way that it will kind of topple over to become something permanent and different. Right. And... Um, there are a lot of beloved institutions in San Francisco which are under threat or um, have disappeared under threat of kind of the overwhelming uh, uh, feel-good corporate ju- juggernaut that is crushing all of us under its heel. <laughs> well, that's that's happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's Why still not? really good dumplings, though. So, I mean, the town has good things, too. <laughs> it has good things, too. But the change, usually we see change. You know, uh, it's like, okay, this street changed, this store changed, this restaurant changed. But there's been a sea change just in the last couple of years that's inescapable. I agree. And that's sort of when the new people, and so a lot of those people come, and then they go. They kind of grow up and go on with their lives. Um, well, who can be knowing? But the the book is interested in these kind of, uh, the kind of guru uh, status that we assign to some of these tech people who are often... Um, proclaiming as new and visionary ideas that in fact seem kind of ordinary to me like um would you like something delivered to your home or would you like to take a ride in someone else's car or uh would you like to sleep in a house that isn't yours because you're in a new city and you'd like to spend the night there and the idea that these ideas are so startlingly new that we greet them as kind of philosopher kings is uh (laughs) odd to me now give us a background on the story not too much don't want to ruin the story Yes, let's not ruin anything. We don't want to ruin anything. Um, The book is about marriage in a changing San Francisco. It's about two marriages. One is between people who love each other, and the other one is cooked up under, I think, more interesting circumstances, where a young woman who uh, drinks too much falls for a bartender. How could that go wrong? And the two of them cook up a scheme that she is going to kind of land this tech guru who is very wealthy, and then some of that money will go to the struggling bartender. 
Um, the book is dedicated to Daniel Hyatt, who is no longer with us, who was a bartender of much aplomb and dash. And um, I really liked him. I didn't know him that well, but I liked him. And he uh, ran a little place called Alembic on Haight Street. And he was full of the individual freaky dreams of what is, in my mind, the genuine San Franciscan. So if you went there, he was always with the uh, pomegranate bitters and the brown sugar with the chartreuse and everything that he was trying to make these kind of freaky individual cocktails. But he also kept saying, we need some tech guys to come in here and spend $5,000 tonight on scotch. Come on, how can we make this happen? He was very much uh, trying to chase that dream of big money that I think has... Um, it seems everywhere, just everywhere out of reach in San Francisco and was also a small business owner being threatened by those um, financial constraints. And then he was also kind of a freaky and individual artiste of sorts. So I like thinking about the balance of that in the city and how everyone wants to live here because of the kind of freaky individuality. But the freaky individuality gets stamped out by everyone wanting to live here and how that goes. And so... Um, the idea of all these people meeting together in a bar and trying to marry their interests together seemed uh, like fodder for a good book to me. I had fun writing it. That's the important thing, I think. That you had fun writing it. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Surely yeah. there's none of our listeners here would like me to suffer. <laughs> no one wants you to suffer. Yeah. But we don't want And if you would, please call in, which is the <laughs> safest thing to say on a pre-taped call-in show. <laughs> Come on. Call us now. No Won't one's ever call called now? us. No, it's the ever, number is four. Tw over 20 Just years. dial four into your phone and you'll get and me just, right away. I'll answer right start away. Start talking. Yeah. Start talking. That will do it. Tell us your opinion. <laughs> well, more in line with what the experience has always been like is that people come to San Francisco and they come. It's not like they happen to find themselves here. If they're staying, they wanted to come here. And one of your characters, Stanford, uh, wonders now and then about this adopted city that is raising him. And I thought that was particularly interesting because people do come here. They have a real idea what they're going to do. But in a sense, you mature here and you become something else. And the city is, is a part of that. Uh, yeah. I mean, Stanford is gay. And I think that um, we've watched generations of uh, people who are um, uncomfortable expressing their sexuality and, and often very justifiably uncomfortable or even in danger of expressing their sexuality or their gender or their preference or their um, kind of anything else in a romantic and gender and sexual realm. And um, you also see in the way that that gets homogenized and threatened as well. So Stanford is an African-American gay man who has found his way to San Francisco because he was not made welcome where he was previously. And to the extent that he's welcome and not welcome is a line that he is um, uh, always trying to discern where is. I was going to say balancing, but he often falls off balance at it. Um, but I've watched that happen too. And um, to see what made San Francisco special was to f that it felt like such a, a sanctuary and refuge for so many people, not only in that realm, but in the many other realms where they felt like they were safe to be here. And as the city uh, changes and gets more moneyed and more homogenized, um, you have to wonder about whether we can really call ourselves a sanctuary for such people. Well, it would be wrong to think this is just about San Francisco. There are several aspects that are global in nature, especially in the tech themes. Um, one is that with technology and the shape it is now, it is more difficult for certain wives to get a hold of the money. It's not just society being cash-free. 
<laughs> it's everybody. Yeah, no, I think it's money in general. I mean, and I think the, the book looks at the way money is run in marriages, which is often complicated and fraught. And um, part of it is access and the way that... Um, it's always access. Yeah, you no longer have uh, access to perhaps the money that you married into or even married for is one of the drives of the book. But I'm glad you caught that. Well, yeah, I think about uh, if I was to look back at my mother's time or my grandmother's time, you know, uh, it would not be uh, unlikely for the housewife, whenever payday is, for dad to come home and give her some cash in an envelope and she was to run the house. Um, Well, who knows what mom did? I know uh, a gal I went to to grade school with uh, when her mother died. uh, she related this story to me that they said, well, who is that person? Who is that? It turned out to be your mother's bookie. Wow. Now, if you have cash in an envelope, you could have a bookie. Good to know. Good right. to know. Yeah. Good to know. So there's a certain, as small as it may be and what you're trying to pull off, you did have control and privacy. Sure. Over that. Yeah. yeah. And nowadays I think that's harder to trace. And so part of what happens is that our young uh uh, drinking too much heroin, Paget, uh, who is um, quite taken with the ambitious and somewhat ruthless barman, Martin, finds that she's marrying for money. But then you don't, you know, when you marry for money, you don't, you're not welcome to, to do a huge house where there's a pile of gold coins that you have access to and the ways in which she would like to get in that money and the ways in which um, women in particular are denied access to the finances of their marriage was interesting to me. And of course he comes home and says, oh honey, here's your new phone. Give me your old one. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute, what was in my old one? Exactly. <laughs> and part of the technology, of course, is tracing all this. Everything you do, everywhere you are. Yeah. Which, and of course, in some ways is a comfort or we feel it as a comfort anyway. I have a teenage son and the idea that he can't quite be as completely invisible as I was in my teenage years only makes me remember the worst things I did as a teenager. But a surveillance state makes everybody nervous. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Daniel Handler. Yes, that's me. A storyteller and prolific writer of fiction. You might best know him as the author with the pseudonym Lemony Snicket with children's and young people's books, including the series A Series of Unfortunate Events. His adult fiction, of which there are many, is published under his real name, Daniel Handler. And we're here today with his eighth adult fiction book, Bottle Grove. Well, we have to take a little side trip here into Lemony Snicket. Uh, wherever you'd like to go, it's fine with me. I have no other plans right now. Oh, good, good. What would you like to discuss? Well, I think some people know, say, oh, you mean this guy's really Lemony Snicket? And then there are other people who go, who's Lemony Snicket? What's this about? Let's, let's visit that. Tell us about that. Uh, certainly, I write uh, children's books, which are uh, narrated by a man named Lemony Snicket. And um, the most prominent ones are about uh, three orphans who uh, undergo terrible thing after terrible thing, a kind of endless parade of misery and despair. And uh, those are called a series of unfortunate events. There are 13 books in a series of unfortunate events, appropriately enough. Um, they've been adapted for various media, uh, most recently as part of the Netflix television uh, juggernaut empire. Well, one thing I love about the website itself, uh, which I guess is LemonySnicket.com, is when you go out there, it says, warning, do not enter. This site is very unpleasant. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, When I was first writing the uh, beginning volume, the bad beginning uh, of a series of unfortunate events, 
the publisher said, and now would you be willing to write something on the back that would attract people to such a story? And I thought, but it's terrible. <laughs> how would we do that? Why would we, how would we, why would we? And then how would we? And then I happened to be visiting a pharmacy and I saw some of the labels on the more dangerous drugs. And I thought, well, that seems more appropriate to me. So then I began to write that people would not be interested in the books, which is quite handy because when the occasional I'm kind of over worried a librarian or tense parent says, I think these books are not good for my child. I'm able to say, I agree wholeheartedly. Please do not let your children read right it. There. Put them down. <laughs> but I think everybody is intrigued by life. You can't can't paint it all. Everyone rosy. is intrigued by life. Oh yeah. I have to think about that. Oh yeah. That's an abstract statement. Yeah. I have to think about that later now, when I get If you home. really want to have a feel good moment, you should go to Disney World because as a friend of mine did, another friend, different friend, who happened to break her leg there. Wow. And they send you right next door to a town that was totally developed by Disney Disneyland or Disney the Disney Corporation. And they have a hospital there and they have like X-ray beach and there's sand there. That's where you get your X-rays. Everybody, they have everything. <laughs> they have a themed hospital. Yeah, and her, wow. her her husband and children had to get home to school and to work, and they abandoned her there for a few days. They abandoned her in, at X-ray beach. Yeah, well, for just, a few oh, days, she only oh, broke her leg. Well, she had. They had to operate. You know, on those, or maybe a lot of people break their leg there. I don't know. I don't know. I either. don't know what the story is, but she was abandoned for a few days, and. One thing after another was the ha- the happiest place on earth, but inside a hospital. So <clears throat> I can see where they were going with your book. I don't know. Um, yes. I guess your point is that despair and misery are lurking wherever we go. <laughs> yeah. I quite agree. Sure I couldn't agree is. more. Well, in your literature, whether it's the children, young adults, adult fiction, you skate around the, the fringes of the dark and the dark side of people, their motivation, the events. But this is not deep, dark writing. There's more to it than that. Well, it's hard to think of a story in which there isn't at least the possibility of something terrible happening. And that was what I was most interested in when I was a child, was terrible things happening. I thought that was really interesting to read. And so I think um, children's literature has a very long history of, of really dreadful things happening. Hansel and um, Gretel, great example. Yeah, they're, uh, they're a wonderful <laughs> Goldilocks and the Three Bears. <laughs> yeah, and with stories like that, there's always kind of the assumption that they have some moral lesson in them, but not if you read them. I mean, what could be the moral lesson of Hansel and Gretel? Right, Their dad dar- starts dating someone. She's an awful and wants to kill them. They run into the forest. They wander around. They find a witch. They live with her for a while. That really doesn't work out. Through a miracle, they escape and they come home. What's the moral of the story? Your dad shouldn't date, but what he was lonely. <laughs> what was he supposed to do? He didn't want to suffer. We he, want yeah, to he didn't want to live in a suffer. cottage with two children and nobody else. <laughs> well, we still have San Francisco to look at. What is like one thing you describe is a and this this happens in other places, but it's so signature San Francisco. There is a hip new nursery elementary school uh, and we have many of them. Uh, But in this one, the new generation learns to be part of constant change. Yes, the school in the novel is called Kitsune School and is inspired by the principles of Japanese folklore, specifically the fox, who is a constant uh, schemer. And a transformer, and so the school has hardly any rules whatsoever, and turns out it attracts kind of dust, dastardly sorts. When I was first working 
On the book, I was walking around in my neighborhood and I saw a fox for the first time, which I'd never seen in my neighborhood. And um, since then, I began to see them, foxes and coyotes, all the time in my neighborhood. Oh, They've yeah. Been displaced all by over. All yeah. of the new construction. And, you know, the coyotes are kind of threatening and they present themselves in a kind of threatening manner. But the foxes are very, they look very nice. You know, they have this kind of demeanor of, well, hi, I was just about to have some coffee. Would you like to come over? And it got me curious about foxes and I began to read about them. And really in every culture, uh, the fox is of the same personality, which was really interesting to me. You know, if you read a... um, an African folktale about a snake and a Native American folktale about a snake, you get very different snakes. But anywhere that has a fox, they call them the same things. They're conniving, they're amoral, they're very sneaky. I got very interested in a medieval text called Reynard the Fox, which was extremely popular throughout Europe at the time, and um, that has this hero that basically is a fox and does anything that he wants to, most of which is very nasty all the time. And so there's a uh, fox and a kind of a shape-shifting going on in the novel that I felt marked the um, inscrutable, charming, and dangerous tenor of so many of the changes happening in San Francisco. And, of course, Reynard is a character in the novel. Yes, there's a man named Reynard, and he um, gets shiftier and shiftier and foxier and foxier as the novel continues. Well, in the Native American tradition, as in others, there are beliefs about animal spirits accompanying you through. So whether it's shape-shifting or coming around to certain portions of your life and maybe they're infecting you or influencing you if it's one of them happens to be a fox. So the idea, you know, can go, it's what I I kept, kept coming away with is my mother always saying bad companions, bad companions. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. You could have bad companions. They could influence you to act in certain ways at certain times. That's true. I like thinking about your mother saying bad companions. Did she say that when you got home from spending time with people of whom she disapproved? I think she just kind of, oh, <laughs> just like trying to get out the door to visit people who she disapproved. Was oh, really I a see. Challenge. So, of course, I was on the lookout, you know. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, but she had this idea that, you know, if you're around people, you know, to me, it's all sort of the same. It's all sort of part of the same continuum. You know, sure. You know, what makes people act badly at certain times that otherwise might not act badly? And uh, because people don't, bad people don't act, act badly all the time. They'll open the door for someone, <laughs> you know. No, then... of course not. Yeah. Well, I think the idea that we all have kind of an untamed and um, wild and maybe even nasty side and a civilized one is interesting to me. And is played with in the novel of these untamed places like the little parks in San Francisco. And then there's the kind of sheer commerce and shininess <laughs> of the capitalism. Yeah, and bars are kind of where they, it's a passing point between the two, I think. And the idea that marriage, too, is something that civilizes you, that you pretend to be a better person and then you have to live up to be a better person as you hitch yourself to someone else. That's interesting to me. Well, in Silicon Valley, in the tech world, any of these places, social media, doesn't matter. Uh, We eat failure for breakfast, uh, and we have a lot of failures. We have a whole lot more failures than we have success. And you're right, and I'll leave the name out of the quote, but a certain character will disappear in silence like any failure in a successful town. And the notion of what success constitutes in um, some of our current most colorful indices and certainly in this town is pretty crazy if you don't have your own skyscraper if your startup doesn't immediately go public and make everybody incredibly wealthy almost instantly then what kind of success are you 
I've been speaking with Daniel Handler, also known as Lemony Snicket. We'll talk about his latest adult novel, Bottle Grove. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, two female engineers working on two different challenges. One is fast response technology for medical tests, and the other is committed to weeding out the placebo effect in clinical trials. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Daniel Handler, best known for his children's books under the pseudonym Lemony Snicket. He's here today with his San Francisco-based adult fiction book, Bottle Grove. And the notion of what success constitutes in um, some of our current most colorful industries and certainly in this town is pretty crazy if you don't have your own skyscraper. If your startup doesn't immediately go public and make everybody incredibly wealthy almost instantly, then what kind of success are you? And um, when we meet uh, the Vic, who is the um, tech mogul in Bottle Grove, he is um, kind of reaching the height of his um, empire. And as he marries and expands and expands, he's threatened from other sides. And the idea that someone who has, by any... Uh, definition been super successful um, begins to feel like a failure and begins to feel cornered in. It's interesting to me too. The decisions they make change over time. It's not a question of, oh, I'm so successful now. I'm so happy and everything's working out. They're bad. They're just human after all. Yes, they are. We are. Now, is your son allowed to read your books? Oh, sure. My son can read whatever he wants. Um, I think it's odd for him to feel uh, pressured to read things that um, are written by his parents. Uh, my wife is an illustrator and a writer as well. And so we have a lot of 
books around and we know a lot of people who make all kinds of different cultures. So I think particularly when he was little, he just always had the sense that anything that he liked was probably made by someone that we knew. So he would always say, like, could we have the Beatles over or something? And we would say, we can't. We don't know them. Um, <laughs> They're not free this weekend. But yeah. But he, and when he was very uh, young, he was not interested in a series of unfortunate events. He would ask me regularly, what are they about again? And I would say they were about three children who lose their parents in a terrible fire and then more terrible things begin happening to them. And then he would say, no, I'm not going to read those. And I would say, I don't blame you. <laughs> but he's read them now and he's in high school and has his own uh, dark and strange taste, I would say. What's common between your writing process or your mindset between whether it's children's books or young adult books or uh, adult fiction? Is there anything common? I don't know. I mean, they all feel like my particular and peculiar fascinations. So I just wander around this town. I take a lot of notes. I carry a notebook with me at all times, which I'm branching at you, even though this is Ooh. radio and not a very nice medium. green and very oh, comforting yeah, it's, green. It's very lovely. And then I, when I fill up a notebook, I type it into a document and then I take the document and I, and I cut it up like a madman and put it all on index cards. And then I carry the index cards and some legal pads to various cafes and libraries in this great town. And then I work on the book and then it's terrible. And then it gets less terrible over time. I hope. At some point there's a deadline. It gets turned in. There's sometimes there's, there's a deadline or sometimes I just finally think this is it. This is as good as I can make it. As we wander around San Francisco or any town where we mind, we may find ourselves, we might feel very comfortable sometimes and we might feel very at home and very expected things might be happening and then something different happens, something we weren't expected or something we were afraid of, or maybe just a thought pops into our head that we don't know where it knows about. And we get that small dizzying feeling and we begin to think, where am I? What am I doing here? What has the whole thing been doing? Well, that's tough. That's all I have to say. <laughs> hey, that's Good great, luck with Daniel. That. I can't help you. <laughs> Go write your own novel. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Daniel, thank you so much. Hope you can come back and Thanks see Thanks for again. having me. I will, but I'll call first. I won't just stop by unexpectedly. Oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness. My guest today is Daniel Handler. His latest novel is Bottle Grove. It's published by Bloomsbury. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. When we visit a medical office, we're not surprised to hear that a test might take a while to come back from the lab. But that can be unworkable in any number of situations. Brianna Ronco is the founder and CEO of Group K Diagnostics. Well, welcome, fellow female engineer. We don't have a lot of you on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Now, you were an undergraduate in bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania, which is right here in Philadelphia. We happen to be speaking right here. And part of that is they sent you off on an internship, which is where the Group K Diagnostics story started. Tell us about that internship. Yeah, it was a phenomenal internship that changed my life. Um, I was matched through a physician shadowing program to an infectious disease doctor at a local HIV clinic here in Philly, actually about four or five blocks from where we are sitting right now. And it was supposed to be for two weeks. Um, but uh, this doctor was phenomenal. She taught me everything I know about clinical care, and I stayed there for a year and a half, actually. And while I was there, one of the problems that I saw over and over again was that even though we had a lab draw site down the hall from our clinic, we would send our patients there. By the time we got their results back, they were gone. 
Either we couldn't reach them by phone or they never came back to the clinic or if they did come back, it was for their follow up in three months. And that's just too late for any kind of um, care that's actually actionable that can make a difference, whether preventative or treatment. Um, So I said, why don't we have something in this modern day and age that can give us results in the time of a clinic visit? Why hasn't this been able to be done? Uh, My academic background is in microfluidics, and that's a big word, so I'll stop and explain that. Basically think uh, a set of plumbing that's been shrunken down onto a chip, but I said, why can't we put the plumbing that makes traditional diagnostics run onto a chip, and can we produce it at a low enough cost that we could put it in the hands of every patient in every clinic? And we were able to do that using paper microfluidics, and that is Paper microfluidics? What is that? So essentially, it's building a system of channels or pipes, but using paper and wax as your system instead of using higher cost materials like glass or um, plastic even. So we're able to produce a large quantity of diagnostics fast and cheap. And that allows us to actually get it into these clinics with a low level of user training and enable them to give their patients diagnostics right on the spot. So that's the goal um, that Group K Diagnostic aims to do in the future. So here we are in 2019. How long ago, what what year was was your internship at uh, the clinic? My internship would have been 2014 through about 2016, um, and I started first working on the idea in the summer of 2016, finally. I feel it's really important as an engineer and an entrepreneur to see the problem and clearly understand it before moving forward, and I spent my year and a half in the clinic really figuring that out before I made the first steps in trying to design a product. And there was a lot of designs in the beginning before we settled on the final one. Well, I have to say that when you do it in the field, it's different than going back to your cubicle and saying, here's how I think it is, because in the field, you notice right away what interfaces with humans and what doesn't. Tell us what part of that was important in the ultimate design of what you were doing. Yeah, so true. Um, So our first uh, iteration was just a a piece of paper. It was paper with wax printed on it. And it worked, but it was very flimsy. So as soon as we had that prototype, I brought it around probably to about 40 or 50 primary care docs. And I asked them for their feedback. And one of the things that you notice on our device today is we have an acrylic backing on our device that has no no scientific value whatsoever, but has extraordinary functional and aesthetic value in allowing physicians to feel confident enough that our test is actually sturdy and secure and won't cause any contamination issues depending on what sample sample they're handling. Now, now tell us what this looks like and uh, and the size it is. It's radio; they can't see that. And and take us through what happens. And how long it all takes. Sure. So um, for different tests, it's different sizes. I'll use our liver function test for an example. We call it the Multinostic, and it's currently with the FDA. We're seeking a 510K approval. And it fits in the palm of your hand. It's a test strip. So if you were born in the 1980s or later and you were tested for for lead in your blood, you're used to putting a drop of blood on a little card and shipping it off somewhere. Our test is very similar, but we don't ship it off anywhere. You take a finger stick, you put six drops of blood on our device for liver function. And your device looks like? It looks like a card. It um, fits in the palm of your hand. It's maybe about two inches by four inches. With an acrylic back, so it's a little sturdier. With an acrylic back, so it's sturdy. And our wax is blue. 
And it has these six little squares in which you put the blood so that it causes a reaction. Um, a liver function panel has six different analytes in it. So after that reaction occurs, takes about 20 minutes, there's a color change. And that color change is proportional to the analyte that you have in your blood. But the problem with color changing tests is that if you're colorblind, you definitely can't read them. <laughs> and the average user struggles to determine a small difference in color. So we built an iPhone software app to go along with it. And that iPhone app is able to normalize for things like light or environmental changes and read that color with a degree of accuracy that the human eye can't. And it gives a quantitative number just like you would get if you went to a traditional laboratory. You got it. You got it squared away, Brianna. <laughs> it's, it's pretty great. So when a patient walks into the doctor's office, why isn't your blood a vital sign? Your height and your weight is, but isn't your blood more important? I mean, 70% of diagnostics are based on blood tests. So we're enabling your blood to be seen as just another vital sign in your visit. Now, that's the liver function test. What other tests do you have approved? What do you have in development? We have some really exciting things coming up in our pipeline. Um, so we just recently signed a collaboration with the CDC to develop the first Zika point-of-care test to enable pregnant women to be screened every two weeks, even if they're asymptomatic, to allow for better um, enablement of noticing when a woman's infected with Zika, as well as a potential ability to treat. Um, so we are phenomenally excited for that. It's the first of its kind, and it's our first step on the path towards infectious diseases, which is obviously where my heart is. Beyond that, we've got a comprehensive metabolic panel, which is the most common test in the U.S., and that is about to go into clinical trials. That tests things like your kidneys, your electrolytes, glucose. Um, and beyond that, we do a few things really well, and we focus there. That's infectious disease and your basic metabolic testing. As you know so well, there are the inevitable comparisons with Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos. And I, of course, have that famous early interview with her in which it was determined she really didn't have a low voice. She had a normal female voice, you know. And I already know that there's uh, several things that are different. I know from that interview, number one, uh, I know that you got your college degree. I did. I have a BSc. <laughs> you have your BSc. Did not drop out. You do have your bachelor's degree. Um, and secondly, you're explaining very clearly how this works and why it works. And perhaps for the first time in mainstream media, what microfluidics is so that people go, oh, I get it. If you took all the plumbing in my home and you you just shrink down because it's really small. We get that. We get that. We know what the device looks like and we have a sense for how it is and how it works. So uh, that's that's a little different. We have that. And now how old are you? I am 22, almost 23. So though I am young and that is a comparison to her, I think the difference is, aside from my internship in the clinic, I spent three years working in Dan Hammer's lab at Penn doing microfluidics. My work was in trauma immunology. I was used to solving problems. I was well-trained in the ethics of research, um, which is of fundamental importance to me. And I was trained that even the most basic research can impact patients' lives. And if you're holding even one patient's diagnostic results in your hands, that is a heavy weight to hold because you might be giving that person results that mean life or death. Maybe not for liver function, but down the road for us, that could be a possibility. So I think having that background of research ethics and having a background of awe when it comes to science and understanding the power that science and medicine has gives a different perspective and lets you treat the subject material with respect and treat your patients with respect. Well, 
you're several years younger than Elizabeth was when she was on the show. But I'm going to give you the same last question. What are you going to do when you're 30? That's a great question. I would love to go back to the same clinic work that I was previously doing. Um, I would love to be able to work with the community that doesn't have a lot of access to health care. And I'd like to spread that access. And that's exactly what we're doing with the multi-gnostic. It is an affordable, fast test that we're able to put into the hands of medical professionals that aren't necessarily physicians or lab technicians and get care to the people who need it the most. Well, uh, thank you for coming in. Please come back. See us anytime. Keep us updated. Will do. Thank you. Brianna Ronco is the founder and CEO of Group K Diagnostics. More information is available at groupkdiagnostics.com. I would like to make one special note. You can easily find my 2005 interview with Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos at technation.com. It's in the left-hand column on the homepage. From my perspective, the difference between these two interviews, Brianna's that we just listened to and the one with Elizabeth Holmes, is distinctive. They serve as an important reminder that we can hear the difference between what's real and what, well, isn't. We just need to listen carefully, as I'm sure we all will next time. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. And now the second female engineer of the program, Dr. Erica Smith. She has a Ph.D. in biomedical engineering, and she's a former principal scientist at Pfizer. Today, she's the vice president of business development for Tools for Patient, which is looking into solutions with respect to subjects in clinical trials who are so hopeful that they will receive benefit in clinical trials who are so hopeful that they will receive benefit, they get positive results just from participating, whether or not they receive the treatment being tested. That's absolutely true. So we all know that um, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials are the gold standard for the FDA to approve drugs. Here's what happened when you didn't have it. Here's what happened when you did. Exactly. And that's because there is a profound placebo effect with many in many indications where the patients receiving the placebo or an inactive or sham treatment um, do have a very strong response. So, so so companies are challenged to show efficacy of drugs that is greater than the placebo response. And the placebo response is a very difficult thing to understand because it's an extremely complex phenomenon. There's a psychological basis. There's a biological basis. And there are many factors that influence how the placebo response can manifest in a trial. Things like it's different in different geographies. It's um, it's increasing over time. So in the past 30 years, the amount of placebo response drug companies see in clinical drug development is actually increasing. So essentially, we're in a little bit of a vicious cycle where the placebo response is increasing. That requires drug companies to run longer, more complex trials. Those complex trials tend to increase the placebo response. And the net effect of all of this is it, it makes drug development far more expensive and it delays the delivery of drugs to the patients that need them. So it's a very significant problem. Now, you said it could be affected by geography. What do you mm-hmm. mean by that? So certainly um, the placebo effect, as I mentioned, has been increasing over time. They have found that that, in, in some indications like pain, that um, impact is actually uh, 
is occurring in the United States more than in other countries in Europe, for example. And they think it may be due to, to two factors. The first is the increased complexity of trials. The second is the fact that drug companies are advertising directly to consumers. So it's increasing consumers' expectations that they're going to have um, efficacy of experimental drugs because they see these um, advertisements on television. Interestingly, the United States is one of only two countries that allows drug companies to advertise directly to consumers. But even in Europe, um, in each European country, there are certainly some that are known to have a a profound placebo effect. And it may be due to things like um, uh, the standard of medical care. It may be due to maybe not having access to to similar drugs in the past, or it may just be due to cultural differences between countries. But we, we know for a fact that there are some countries where there are stronger placebo responses seen and some countries where there are lower there are lower placebo responses seen. We tricky humans. We're so tricky. The, the brain is so know. complex. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the things we can manifest for ourselves are really quite profound. What could be done about this? You know, it's a great question. And there, there are lots of different things that people have tried. Um, uh, things like things aimed at reducing patient reporting error, for example, because many outcomes in clinical trials Pain, for example, are reported by patients. So they, they have a perception of their symptom that may be influenced by, by their psychology. So there are, there are approaches that, say, for example, will train patients to report their pain more accurately. But ultimately, these things have not eliminated the issue of the placebo response. So the placebo response really has, has two impact on clinical data. The first is it reduces the size of the treatment effect because there's some placebo response, then the, then the, the treatment efficacy has to be demonstrated above and beyond that. Um, and second, it increases the variability in clinical data. So if every patient in a trial had responded to placebo in the same way, it would be uniform and it wouldn't, it wouldn't confound data as much as it does. But because every Let me pa- just stop you there. Yeah. What you're saying is that, that even though you might have a high placebo response, every subject in the trial is going to have a variable amount mm-hmm. in this terms of placebo That's exactly response. Right. And so, so, so the placebo response oh, is, oh, a, is, a, is a characteristic of the individual patient. And so each patient has a, a placebo response that, that is related to their biology and their psychology. And because of that, it not only impacts patients in the placebo group, there is a proportion of the treatment response in patients receiving drug that can be attributed to the placebo response. And in an Areas like depression and pain, that can be as much as two-thirds of the total treatment effect seen. So there's there's both the, this, it's this increase in data variability um, that Tools for Patients set out to address with the technology that they began developing five years ago. Now, how do you measure it? That, that, that's a great question. Well, it's, it's not or easy. Is it, or is it predicted? Can you predict it? So essentially, the Tools for Patient, when they, when they started the company, um, it was a, a group of, of longtime colleagues and, and drug development veterans that had, that had run clinical trials and designed clinical trials and, and contended with this issue and understood firsthand how difficult it can be to deal with. So they decided to, to, to have the ambitious goal of developing a tool to predict in advance, which patients would be placebo responders um, relative to other patients in the trial. So the way that that is done um, is by essentially a personality questionnaire. A lot of the work that was done in development in the first several years of the company was to develop and validate this questionnaire um, and to focus on the things that are related to having a strong placebo response. 
So we started with a, with a casting a very broad net, looked at many different personality traits, so many of which um, were uh, there was literature to support their their use. For example, people that are more optimistic tend to have a higher placebo response, as one would expect. Uh, your level of expectation of how you think you will will perform in the trial may influence the placebo response. So um, these are things that are that are measured with this questionnaire. Um, then we combine that with some just standard patient characteristics, things like age and gender and disease intensity and maybe a little bit of medical history. And we've developed a, an algorithm that's based on machine learning that will um, combine all of those factors into a single number that describes that patient's, the expected magnitude of that patient's placebo response. And it's done for each patient in the trial. And ultimately, that number can be used in, this, in the statistical analysis to reduce the variability in the data. So... In a sense, we're not saying we're taking the selection criteria of the patients away so much as we're trying to figure out in advance what will be their response, and then we'll account for it statistically. That's exactly right. So there's a temptation, and, and it makes a lot of sense, that you would want to remove the patients that have a high placebo response in the trial. Nothing but dullards in your trial to <laughs> exactly. get the statistics to be right. <laughs> exactly. But really, the regulatory agencies are not favorable because they want the drugs to be tested in, in as general an audience as possible. So what this technology does is it allows you to keep the high placebo responders in because we can account for some of the variability that that adds to the data. Now, how do you test for that? Is that part of the part of the thing that you do when you're trying to recruit patients? Yeah. So, so all of this um, all of this work is done at the beginning of the trial, um, and we have invested a lot of time and money, basically doing validation in each specific disease state to understand exactly how these how the factors that I mentioned the personality, the the disease characteristics, and the patient demographics, how they are weighted against each each other. Um, in each disease state. And so we have a model and an algorithm that can do that at the beginning of trials for many diseases that are confounded by the placebo effect. And are the potential subjects, are they taking surveys about their attitudes? How they do you are. determine yep. attitudes? It's, yeah. it's, it's a questionnaire that's administered. It's only given once at the beginning of the trial. Um, and that's important because obviously once you have an experience with the drug, your expectation of how you will respond to the drug fundamentally changes. So at the beginning of the trial, we ask um, questions that are related to all these different personality traits, and that is uh, used as input data for our for our method. Can you give us an example of the kind of question you might ask that might be ultimately indicative? Some, many times it's not direct, but if you would answer one way, we would know how that would result. Sure, sure. So um, uh, one of the questions that we might ask, for example, it would be a simple statement that says, um, I'm always worried about making mistakes when dealing with other people. That is a, a, a question from our questionnaire. And then the patient re- answers that on a five-point scale from strongly disagree to strongly agree. And it's the, the questionnaire is about 100 questions like that that are each simple statements that the, the patient rates on a five-point scale. And in general, the questionnaire takes about 35 minutes per patient to complete. So let's say I answered that question. I'm mm-hmm. always worried about making mistakes when I'm with other people. Mm-hmm. I, from 
if I answer strongly agree versus somewhat agree yeah. versus totally agree, uh, what would that tell you about me? So that particular question may be related to something like anxiety or how anxious a person is. So if they say, yes, I, I strongly agree that I am very worried about making mistakes when dealing with other people, that might indicate that they are a more anxious person, maybe a little bit less optimistic, and and when put into our algorithm, that may ultimately contribute to them being considered a, a lower placebo responder. But if you uh, really don't care... Exactly. That may that may mean that you're less anxious in general in social situations. People are less anxious in social situations are generally more extroverted, more optimistic, and they may have a, a stronger placebo response. Now, something like this, this sort of qualifying for uh, uh, clinical trials, uh, is that something that would need to get approved by the FDA or a regulatory agency anywhere? Yeah, well, certainly we have interacted with the regulatory agencies in the U.S. and Europe, so they're they're certainly um, aware of the technology. We approach the regulators early in the process to make sure that they, this would not be unacceptable to them. And ultimately, all of the regulators appreciate that the placebo effect is a significant issue, that we haven't been able to find a solution as a community and that this is one potential large step forward. So they're very favorable. One of the important things is that this this approach really does not create any new risk in the trial. So, for example, using this technology does not mean you might you might uh, be able to demonstrate that a drug has efficacy that actually does not have efficacy. So there's no risk of a false positive. And because of that, they consider it to be very low risk. We're working through sort of the approval process with both the European and the U.S. regulators right now, but it is available for use in in any trial. Um, We're still validating in some indications, and we have it available for use sort of off the shelf in other diseases like, like pain, for example. Lyrica, I really appreciate you coming in. Thank and you so much. I hope you ch- come back over time and, and, and tell us what we've found. I think that as we use it, it is an experiment in itself. Yep. What it, have we it learned is. about humans and their expectations and the placebo effect? I think we'll know more after, after it's in use. Absolutely. I would love to do that. We are amassing data. We're learning a lot every day, and we're developing more predictive technologies. So um, I think it is very interesting, and we've got a novel technology that is that that is allowing us to probe a different dimension of clinical drug development. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much. Dr. Erica Smith is the Vice President of Business Development for Tools for Patient. More information is available at toolsforpatient.com. Tools, the number four, and the word patient, toolsforpatient.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nocktrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.